Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. In 2012, a bit of a controversy emerged in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. You see, um, the legislator in Harrisburg decided to declare 2012 the year of the Bible. Well, uh, this upset some uh, atheists, uh, in particular, uh, a gentleman named Ernest Peirce, who was the head of the American Atheist chapter there. And so, in response and in retaliation to this, he decided to put a statement um, in the midst of a predominantly black neighborhood. And um, so, in a big billboard, so that everybody could see, he posted, slaves, obey your masters, Colossians 3.22. Now, perhaps what would be obvious to almost everybody but he and his group, that offended and angered a lot of people in the black community, this, this image and this statement that he made. But as you can see on the bottom of the billboard, it says, this lesson in Bronze Age ethics was brought to you by the year of the Bible in the House of Representatives. Now, interestingly enough, Harrisburg had just elected its first African-American woman as their mayor. <laughs> and she had quite a different reaction uh, to th this controversy. She said, I'll continue to pray for the atheists that they may find Jesus Christ one day. Now, this scenario is, is kind of ironic to me because uh, Mr. Purse you know, as, as someone who's, you know, not just an atheist, but is also white, is making this statement and trying to make this appeal to the uh, African-Americans in the group. And yet the, one, the, the black woman is saying, yo, I, I, I need to pray for your soul. You come and find this person who you are saying was the source of my oppression. And, and I think this moment really uh, reveals a lot of the, the tension that we find ourselves in too many memes that I can name and select and too many uh, conversations that many of us have had. And I guess it could be boiled down to this. Is Jesus the problem or the solution? Is there a sense in which uh, we can look at the scriptures and see them as the, the source of oppression, the reason why we had something as horrific and as degrading as a transatlantic slave trade or a solution to that problem? Well, today we're going to look at and examine and zoom in a little bit more on what it means for Jesus to be the image restorer that we talked about last week or specifically the great emancipator. Now, we're going to look at this using three different points. We're going to look at how idols enslave us, how Jesus liberates us, and then how we are liberated to free others. First, how idols 
enslave us. Now, I guess a good question would be, well, what is an idol, right? Uh, Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way. It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Now, the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. And so what this is was a prohibition against idolatry, a prohibition against serving an idol. And yet, when we see in the book of Romans, when Paul is laying out his case for the importance and the centrality of Jesus as the emancipator, he starts in chapter 1 with this statement about humanity. He says, they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So what he says happens is in, in human history, an exchange took place. And instead of holding on to the truth of who God is, we exchange it for a lie and decided to worship, look at that, the creature instead of the creator. You see, even though we, we, people make idols throughout history and build little figurines, ultimately, the primary idol that we still continue to have is that one that looks at us back in the mirror in the morning. And we say, instead of I am bearing the image of God, I can be God. And, and this particular sin, as Everyone does. But this is kind of like the, the granddaddy, right? This is like law one. And so it's no surprise that this is what Jesus says when he shocks his fellow Jews in John chapter 8. And, and he says just point blank right between the eyes, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, now I need you to follow the logic, right? So God says that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. That's a sin. And then now Jesus says everyone who sins, who does that, is a slave to sin. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. Now, that might sound pretty extreme, but one of the most current pictures of this, of this, this form of how idolatry enslaves us. Because see, I, idols, here's, a, here's some practical aspects of idols. Idols always overpromise and underdeliver. That's what happened in the garden, right? They, they always say, look, if you, if you just serve me, if you just do what I ask you to do, then, then you're going to have everything. And initially, because they got to have some type of bait, they'll, they'll, they'll give you some level of satisfaction. But then that level continues to decrease and decrease. Meanwhile, at the same time, the idol's demands for you continue to increase and increase. And that place where uh, the demands exceed the benefits, right? Because like, that's just basic economics. And when you get to a place where it's like, what something is costing me is more than it's giving me, that is what they call addiction. What I'm getting is nowhere close to what I'm spending on it, but I keep doing it anyway. A great philosopher and poet put it this way. 
and I know you'll be the death of me, but at least we'll both be numb. I can't feel my faith when I'm with you, but I love it. I can't feel my faith when I'm with you, but I, it's like, look, I am about to die. I am going down a path that is going to destroy me. And we, meanwhile, we just be like, eh, yeah, this is and, and we dance to our own demise. This is what we do. That's the nature of idolatry. Now, what does this have to do with the issue of bondage and American slavery? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because you see, much like what we talked about last week, there's, there's an A and B side to this aspect. And, and these elements are not only ones that impact us on the personal level, but also on the big picture level. And they're not only just spiritual, but physical. So on the side, A side, we see when Jesus talks about anyone who sins as a slave to sin, that clearly has spiritual ramifications that we can see. But there's also a B side as well. And that B side is equally as important. Now, otherwise, you're like looking on one side of your eye, but you can't see the other. There's a whole other side of the room that you need to see. And the, spirit, and the physical implications of this bondage are just as radical and just as extreme. See the case of drugs. They take and they take and they take. And what happens when a group of people begin to continue to de- develop this addiction to this idolatry of power, of wealth, and greed, well, it ends up enslaving a whole group of people. See, there's not just an individual component to this, but there's also a communal dynamic to this as well. There's, there's two sides to it. And probably this was ex- explicitly explained so poetically, probably no, no better than right at the end of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln at his second inaugural, right? So he had just won election, 1865, January, and he's speaking to a nation. The, the, the war would actually end in just a few weeks after he gives this address, so he knows it's come to a close. But look at what he says. This is in his inaugural. Fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until All the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. And until every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said then 3,000 years ago, so it must be said. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You see, what, what, what President Lincoln was saying there, what he was confessing is that, you know, we have reaped what we have sown. We have, through violence and brutality and greed, demanded from millions of our people who live in our own country, can't even call them citizens, a type of labor and, and extracted from them a type of suffering and now In the bloodiest war that America still has ever seen to this day, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This has a corporate component to it. And the basic point here is that idols lead to spiritual and physical slavery, and that slavery leads to death. That is the point that we see. That is why Jesus said anyone who sins is a slave to sin. 
Fortunately, though, there's good news, and that's not the end of the story. Are you glad about that? Because I'm glad about that, that it doesn't end there. Because you see, even in the midst of this, Jesus liberates us, and his liberation is both spiritual and physical, individual and communal. It is complete. It is comprehensive. It's like when you go do a vacation at Sandals, it's all-inclusive, complete. It's not a side dish. It's the main course, and that is his kingdom in particular. Now, and what I mean by that is this isn't something that we just kind of work up because, you know, folks are woke now, so we're trying to just, like, slide in some, like, justice piece in the midst of it. But when you look closely at the ministry of Jesus, when you look at his words and, and, and look at his life, you see it jumps off the page. In fact, case in point, when he first announced who he was to his people, Luke chapter 4, right? Look at what he says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These are his, that's what he said. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And look at these words. He says, the spirit has anointed me. Anointed one, that's Christ, means Messiah. It means this is, and he says, this is why I'm anointed. He's giving them his mission statement. And that statement is proclaim good news to those who are poor. Proclaim liberty to those who are slaves. Set at liberty those who are oppressed. Pro- proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I can't wait to talk more about that next week. But for now, what we need to see and understand is that this this reality had everything to do with what it meant for him to announce the kingdom of God. Now, he's saying this as a man who grew up as an oppressed people group, as a Jew, in the midst of a Roman supremacist society. And so this didn't just have spiritual implications, but very physical as well. Now, what? If, if, if someone that was enslaved got a, got a wind of this kind of promise and this kind of declaration, what might be their reaction to such news? What might be their reaction to hearing that such a God of the universe that we just sang about who is imminent and magnificent and, and is transcendent has actually care and concern for who they are and their plight? Well, I'm glad you asked because we have some stories about that exact thing. Uh, one in particular, her name is was Isabella Bomfrey. She was born right here in New York, about a couple hours away in Olstead County in 1797. She was sold four times, each master more brutal than the next day. She, her native language, uh, well, native in terms of growing up as a slave in a Dutch household was Dutch. And so when she was sold to an Englishman, he beat her repeatedly because she didn't understand English. And in the midst of this just devastation and and sorrow, she got wind of this thing called the gospel. And and according to her autobiography, she said, God revealed himself one day in a suddenness and a flash of lightning, showing Isabella, in the twinkling of an eye, that he was all over and that he prevailed 
the universe and that there was no place where God was not. This is what she says. Look at it. She says, I just walked round and round in a dream. Jesus loved me. I know it and I felt it. And she's saying, like, look, I, I, even though you think I'm not even worth $150 and I'm worth just abusing, I, but, but the God of the universe has said he loves me. And that, and that means that I'm worth something. And she said, as a result of this moment, she realized, you know what? It's time for me to get up out of here because I'm worth more than this. My life is worth more than this. And so look at what had, this experience transformed her. So then she goes on to say, my name was Isabella. But when I left the house of bondage, I left everything behind. I wasn't going to keep nothing in Egypt. So I went to the Lord and asked him to give me a new name. And the Lord gave me Sojourner because I was to travel up and down the land, showing the people their sins and being assigned unto them. Afterward, I told the Lord I wanted another name because everybody else had two names. <laughs> and the Lord gave me truth because I was to declare his truth to this people. Sojourner, truth. This is the journey in the beginning of her, of, her, of her calling as a woman to see that, yo, I am worthwhile, I am worth something, and my worth is not determined by these people who have put me in bondage, but by the God of the universe. Not only was she an abolitionist and proclaimed that, but she also was a, one of the first early women's rights advocates, and she was one of probably most known for this speech called Ain't I a Woman? And at the end of it, she says, and ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as any man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have borne children and seen most of them sold into slavery. And when I cried out with a mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? She identified and saw that because the God of the universe had given her identity and dignity and significance, that she was complete in Christ, that this was a truth that she needed to experience. In other words, when she heard that promise, so if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that's exactly what she experienced and what she dedicated her life to. And look at that, that freedom was both spiritual and physical. It was both individual and collective. This is what captivated her. So here's the point. Eurocentric Christianity tried to mix the worship of wealth and whiteness with the worship of Jesus, and slaves saw right through it. They, see, there, there, were, there were two religions being practiced and worshiped at the same time in the same house. They had the same book. They even used the same language, but they were two different faiths. One that actually just was experiencing them and, and the true God, and one that was worship, mixing it with some syncretism that had themselves in the mix of it. And the was people saw the difference. They peeped game and real recognized real. So she was a sojourner for truth. And so are we. Well, slaves did not embrace the religion of their oppressors, but they discovered the God of the Bible. So the next time when someone tells you, well, you know, you, you just got that slave religion, that the slave master religion, like, no, I don't. Nope, no, we, we worship two different gods, actually. <laughs> two different truths, two different concepts in the same place. He led Sojourner Truth to declare, and ain't I a woman? 
So she went on this journey and, and noticed that immediately this had implications for how she was not just going to experience freedom herself, but fascinating thing. She actually, when she escaped, she only was able to take one child with her and had to leave one behind. Can you imagine? So in retaliation, the slave master actually sold her other child from New York to Georgia. And she sued him in court, became the first black woman to sue a white person in court, and actually won the case, got her child back um, as a result. And so this leads to the next and last point, that we're liberated to free others. We're called to go back, not just get ours and keep it moving. See, the first thing that Jesus announced, as we saw, was that he came to free the captive. Now, his last command tells his disciples and gives them their marching orders to go and do the same. We see this in the Great Commission. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples, followers of me of all nations, teaching them, look, to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That teaching you to obey everything includes standing up and proclaiming what is just and what is righteous and what is fair. That's all, because all means all. And the disciples got that, and they ran with it, and we know that they understood that this kingdom was both spiritual and both physical. Now, but someone may ask, though, but still, what about slaves obey your masters, though? That's still there. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to get into that. First, context is everything. We need to remember that as we look in the New Testament, we are looking at a a group of letters in a book that's over 2,000 years old, written between Asia and the Middle East, and that there's some context that's needed for us to properly understand what is being said. Oh, yeah, and then it's written in a different language called Greek. So there, there's several steps and there's several layers that we, we have to be able to uh, wade through and peel through in order to get to meaning. Now, just for some initial context, this is a picture of the Roman Empire at the time that the New Testament was being written. It's around 70 AD. And as you notice, this, this, this kingdom, which really started as just the city of Rome, had now expanded through military conquest throughout Europe, throughout Asia, and even the northern parts of Africa. Now... What you may not have known or ever actually thought about is what happened with the people to, after they beat them in the battles, right? They, see, it's not like, see, we live in a pretty uh, stable geopolitical reality where the boundary lines don't change too much, but it wasn't like that 2,000 years ago. And so when I encroached and my army went past its borders and it spread, that meant I had to do something with those people that I had just conquered and conquested, those soldiers that now um, were left. And what they often did was they took them as slaves as they defeated this army. And so that was the major uh, source of slaves in the Roman Empire. But there were two others as well. So the first one was through war. The second one was through debt. Now, what debt meant was that, see, this was before there was something called like social safety nets. Like they didn't have Medicare. They didn't have Medicaid. They didn't have Social Security. And so if you were a small family, if you were somebody that was just struggling going paycheck to paycheck, right, or in this point crop to crop, and you got a bad hurricane that came through or a bad something in an environment naturally happened, and now all of a sudden your crops were destroyed, you had no other recourse. But I have two choices. I can either starve 
or I could sell myself as an indentured servant and as a slave and work for somebody until I got enough money to get back on my feet. And so debt was uh, a second way. And I mean, on the surface, we think about it because like back then they had masters and today we got master cards. That's another sermon for another day. But we're going to. So in any case, debt. Third is punishment. Third was punishment. So oftentimes if someone broke the law, they were also um, they were also to be given this hard, brutal labor in slave mines. Um, and this is actually very interesting and kind of, to me, it's very similar. At this point, one in every five Roman citizens was a slave, right? Um, and so this was really the first aspects of mass incarceration that we see. Again, we'll touch on that in a few weeks as a form of modern slavery. But here's the key points. When we look at this issue of slavery from an American lens that we have to understand, there are three different distinctions. One is that there was no race-based chattel slavery in Rome. What I mean by that is most of the people who were actually in bondage were actually Europeans or whites because when you look at the map, you see it was mostly in Europe. So those people, when they were conquested, were, were that way. So, and then the chattel aspect meant that th- there was no concept of um, your, your kids and your kids' kids and their like, in perpetuity are our own. That wasn't the, the concept. It was primarily it was dealing with the person who had been um, in that relationship. Second, many slaves obtained freedom and voting rights, right? There was this aspect where, again, if the issue was debtedness, um, so we even see, like, if some of y'all heard the movie Spartacus, um, this was, like, kind of the idea behind that. He was someone who was captured in war. Uh, there are other famous people who um, came out of their sense of bondage that was temporary and, and found freedom. And then third is that the harshest conditions were reserved for criminals. So, again, when we think Modern-day slavery, and you know, we think in the American context, we think plantations, we think people with overseers and being whipped. That wasn't, they didn't have a plantation, um, you know, cash crop economy. So this was mostly people didn't, without chains, without, you know, just working as uh, servants in people's homes for the most part. Again, unless they were one of the ones that were considered criminals and then they were sent to like the salt mines where you didn't last very long. But it's important for us to know these things because this is a very different context. Now, that slavery was different, but also the governmental system was different as well. And that's very important for us to know. You see, the Roman Empire at the time of the New Testament was a dictatorship, which is not a democracy. What do I mean by that? So there wasn't this sense of like, oh, we don't like what Caesar says. So, you know, we can do rally in the streets. That would have lasted about five minutes. You would have been beheaded, and that would have been the end of the story. Um, as this picture kind of illustrates that this, he, the, the, the emperor of Rome at the time of the New Testament was considered a deity, was considered divine. People actually worshipped him as, as a god. Now, as you might imagine, this put Christians in kind of a difficult situation because, you see, they had a god, and they said, that's not Caesar. And so what ended up happening was Christians were brutal targets for persecution in this time because they were upsetting the order because they refused to bow to Caesar. In fact, when you look at the gospel accounts, this was part of the trumped up charges that the uh, Jewish leaders um, presented with Jesus. The fact that he was a king and he was preaching insurrection. And so in this context, in a context in which 
is very different than our own in a context in which there was no uh, ability to protest an illegal situation and circumstance. We see that's the, that's the land in which, in the landscape in which we find uh, this discussions of slavery in the Bible. Last one is slavery in the New Testament was descriptive, therefore, and not prescriptive. This wasn't a group of people who were writing about what ought to be. They were describing a situation about what was. And that's also a very important context to understand. They were an oppressed minority. They had no ability to change the laws. And, and, and so they were just trying to get along to, to fit, get in to fit in, right? It's kind of similar to what would you do in the scenario of, of um, if, you know, you had a, a, a friend, a nephew, a, a niece that was in prison, and you knew that they were um, in a brutal, uh, the, like the prison guard and the was, was, was very violent. Would you, you know, what would you tell them to do in that situation? So, in light of all that, what would it look like, though, in the case in which, in a Christian context where there was some control, what would it look like for, in Christian community, for there to be a picture of if one Christian owned another Christian, what would that even, what would that picture be? And fortunately, the New Testament gives us an illustration of that. You see, there was this guy named Philemon. He was a, a very wealthy um, merchant in the city of Colossae, and he and Paul had led him to Christ. And so Philemon is there, and he has this person that is in bondage to him named Onesimus. And Onesimus, one day, he runs away from Philemon, far away from Colossae, finds himself in Rome. Now, he meets this guy named Paul, who he has no idea actually knows Philemon, and Paul begins to share the gospel with him, actually leads him to Christ. Uh, Onesimus begins to serve with him just to help him out while Paul is actually in prison for sharing his faith. Now, in the midst of this circumstance, Paul actually sends Onesimus with some letters to give to Philemon. And he says, hey, I, don't, uh, you know, I want you to confront your past. I want to confront what you've done, but I want to give you something. And look at what, it's one of the shortest letters in the uh, New Testament, so you could actually read it in probably about 10 minutes. But just in one section, it's so fascinating what Paul says. He says, for this perhaps, talking to Philemon, is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, look, both in the flesh physical, and in the Lord, spiritual. And so what Paul says is, hey, I don't want, I'm sending him back to you as my own child, he would say, as my own son. And he says, look, I have the ability because I'm the apostle here to tell you what to do, but I'm not going to just be that forceful. But instead, look at what Paul goes on to say. He says, look at this. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Look, he's speaking in very tangible terms. What he's saying is, hey, I know you got some little beef with maybe he took some things that didn't belong to him. He grabbed some silverware on the way out to make it through his journey. You know what I mean? Got a little five-finger discount. He was like, hey, if Onesimus did that, charge it to my account. I got you when I come back. But receive him as a brother. This is the picture that we see in Christian community of what it looks like when Paul deals with this. This is a radical statement in a letter. Now, it gets better. 
Like I said, Paul is writing this while he is in prison for proclaiming the gospel. So that shows you how much freedom he has to tell people to fight the power, right? (laughs) But even in the midst of that, I said he sent several letters. This is good, y'all. This is good. He also sent the letter to the Colossians and the letter to the Ephesians with Onesimus. What that means is the two main, that, that, that passage that was on the billboard, slaves of your masters, that actually was coming in the hand of Onesimus, giving it to Philemon, who was t- being told, let him go, that same letter. We also know that Onesimus was going not only to be free, but actually be the main pastor in Colossae, the same city. So I think Philemon got the message and got the memo. One last piece on this is kind of to flip it. Now, imagine if Paul would have said, slaves, this is all I want you to do. Disobey your masters. In this context, in this environment, what would that have brought other than death and and pain to the people that were there? But there's one last piece I want to give you. Um, Because this, again, the the Bible just, it it just, it just screams out with this idea of of who God God is and and whatnot. So look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Where's that billboard? He says right here, he's addressing slave people like, yo, if you find yourself in a situation, yo, don't, you know, like, don't worry about it. Like God got you. But if you see that door. Break out, homie. (laughs) And so this is the perspective that we have. There's one other layer to this that is so significant for us to look at, and that is Paul, the slave. Now, Paul was a free person. He was actually a Roman citizen. But in the New Testament, there's this word, doulos. Uh, It's a Greek word that's translated most accurately, slave. Because as a slave is somebody who belongs to someone else and is completely aligned to whatever that master tells them to do. The interesting thing is the word doulos appears over 100 times in the New Testament. But very rarely is it talking about a condition of physical bondage. In fact, most of the time, Many times, Paul is actually encouraging people like himself to feel, to be a doulos. He addresses himself when you look at the letter to the Romans. He says, Paul, a doulos of Jesus Christ. When he writes to Titus, he says, hey, this is Paul. I'm not, you know, my, my first credential isn't I'm an apostle, although I am. My first credential isn't I've seen Jesus face to face and he talked to me, although that's true too. My first credential is I am completely aligned to him as my Lord and my master and me as his servant, yes, his slave. Paul would actually go on to say in Romans chapter uh, 6 and 7, he goes on to say, look, you got two choices. You can either be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. But either way, they are to not just serve ourselves, but to serve somebody else. Now, Some translators, most translators nowadays, use the term servant or bondservant instead of slave when you see uh, this word translated doulos 
because many feel like the concept might be too humiliating or, or belittling, but ultimately it's the same word. And I actually kind of dis, am disappointed that those choices are made because I think it takes some of the weight behind what that meant for them to identify themselves as slaves, bond servants of Jesus Christ. But where do they get this idea from? <laughs> Again, it comes back to Jesus. Look at what he says in Mark 10, 44 through 45. He says, but whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom. This is completely radical. This is completely countercultural. He's saying that him, even though he's revealed himself as the God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, says, first, I came to serve and not be served. And so he tells them to go and do likewise. Now, Jesus frees us from idols and injustice so we can willingly choose to serve him, not under compulsion. See, that's the difference, and that's part of the horror about why uh, chattel slavery is so destructive and is so violent because it takes people's will away to do what they're supposed to ultimately only render to God, which is unfettered, complete devotion and obedience and alignment. That only, there's only one person that deserves that. That's Jesus. He frees us from these idols and this injustice so that we can choose to serve him and be an agent of him, both in terms of what it means spiritually and what it means physically. You know, uh, a while back, we were at the uh, Flatbush Fest, and I had a conversation with a young lady uh, who was there at the lot that we were at. And she was somebody who said that, you know, she had uh, grew up in church, but, you know, she started to really just get this sense of a burden of just the issues that were going on in our community and just as an African-American woman. And so she said, you know, I started to realize the issue of slavery. And so I just rejected Christianity because, you know, this was part of a tool to use for us to be oppressed. And I was like, man, I understand. I hear that. I can, I, you know, I can empathize with that. So then I asked her something, though. I said, you know, you know, Frederick Douglass talked about how the Christianity of this land is completely antithetical to the Christianity of Christ, right? Like, and, that, and that was why he became an abolitionist. He said, Sojourner Truth actually was like, God changed my name to be a sojourner to confront the people of America to say, look, this was sin. So I guess I'm curious, like, do you think that they were wrong in their understanding and interpretation of the Bible? No, nah, no, nah, you know, they down for the cause. They, they were, I'm like, cool. But you just said that, you, that Christianity was a, t- a tool of oppression. But that's what the slave master said, not the, pers- not the liberation people, not the abolitionists. And she stopped and she paused. She said, hmm, <laughs> I need to think about that some more. You see, God of freedom or slavery, who got it right? Earnest or sojourner truth? Frederick Douglass or Robert E. Lee? See, because they both can't be right. And to claim that one is right is to say the other one is a liar. So you can't simultaneously hold to Christianity being false and being oppressive and still say that Sojourner Truth was right. You got to make a decision. You got to pick one. 
Well, lastly, as we close, here's the thing. Jesus said that anyone who sins is a slave to sin, right? And that there's these idols that we might be experiencing. So what are idols that might be holding you in bondage? Because the reality is for some of us, that might be a relationship. Something that we put in favor over God himself. For some of us, it might be a job, a dream even. In any of these things, they, they promise, they overpromise, and they always underdeliver. And they always take us away from the true and living God and what he would do in our lives. Our next question is, how might Jesus want to liberate you? What are the ways both spiritually and physically that he might be speaking freedom where the spirit of the Lord is? There is freedom. There's liberty. What ways is he proclaiming that over your life right now? And then lastly, how might Jesus want to use you to help liberate others? You see, it's never been about simply us. It's always been about Jesus. It's always been about uh, how do we um, use and leverage the influence that he's given us for other people. Whether it's mass incarceration, the cycle of poverty, um, unequal forms of just distribution of influence in our communities. There are so many ways in which we are people that have influence. And God has called us to use that influence for the greater good. And yeah, it may be difficult sometimes, and it may even end up causing us to be sacrificed, just like Paul was sacrificed in that prison. But ultimately, Paul said, they, they might lock this body in chains, but they can never free my, they can never lock up my mind and my spirit. People misquote this and say that it's Bob Marley that says it because he put it in the song, but ultimately it was Marcus Garvey. He said, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. You see, slavery was the fruit of worshiping self dressed as Jesus. Liberation is the fruit of worshiping the true Jesus. This emancipator, this one who says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the one that we worship. This is the one that we proclaim. This is the one that says, go everywhere, proclaim to everyone that regardless of your ethnicity and your history and your background and your culture, that I have a vision of freedom, of liberation, of truth that will set you free. That is the invitation that he gives us. How will you respond? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the fact that you are a God of freedom. We thank you that that freedom doesn't just extend itself physically, but goes to the very depths of our soul. Lord, we thank you that you do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And then you empower us to go out and liberate and proclaim freedom to others. Lord, would you give us the boldness? Would you give us a sense of conviction? Would you demolish the idols that have taken root in our hearts and our lives? 
And would you bring us to the place where worship of you, the only true and living God, not our idols, not our flesh, but the worship of you is all that we desire. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.